Brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Hello and welcome to Sacred Nine Project Podcast. February's episode is a follow-up from the Thanksgiving episode about early hymnody reflecting white portrayals of Native American life. One song in particular is what Southern Harmony calls Indian Convert. It is more widely known as Indian Hymn. As discussed before, it is a kind of blackface lyric in which, supposedly, a Native American is heard singing, in perfect meter and rhyme, no less, the personal account of his conversion to Christianity, but in broken English. Here is a verse of it as written in Southern Harmony. In the dark woods, no Indian night, then me look heaven and send up cry, then me look heaven and send up cry, upon my knees so low. But God on high in shiny place, see me at night with teary face, see me at night with teary face, the preacher tell me so. But God on high in shiny place, see me at night with teary face, see me at night with teary face, the preacher tell me so. In Southern Harmony, the hymn is credited to a Johnson. Coincidentally, today's guest wrote an article that mentions a Joseph Johnson who was a Mohegan, not Mohican, missionary from that time. Yes, in my research, I discovered a wonderful article by Drew Lopenzina entitled In the Dark Wood No Indian Nigh in 2020. The article revealed that Indian hymn is most frequently attributed to William Apis from the Pequot tribe because the text of the song was published in one of his books. Since Apis was an educated and erudite man, while the song is in broken English, Drew set out to learn more about this disconnect. I'm Drew Lopenzina. I work uh, with Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. I am a uh, professor of early American literature and Native American literature. First, we talked about how Native American literature became such a significant focus in his career. Yeah, so when I was a graduate student, it just happened to correspond with the fact that uh, I was reading a lot of great Native American literature, just novels and poetry that was coming out at the time. And really, it was, uh, I think, some of the most creative and poignant literature. Uh, People like Louise Erdrich and James Welch and and even Sherman Alexie and uh, Joy Harjo, who has been most recently our our U.S. uh, Poet Laureate. so there were a lot of great writers, and, and so it was really on my radar screen, and I loved the way that they were um, not only writing just beautiful books, um, great stories, but but it was kind of rethinking history and the way that most of us came to understand history. And so when I was in graduate school, um, I was really fascinated with that, and, and there's a social justice component to it that I, I was really intrigued with, and, and I was you know, trying to find a place to, to locate my own interest. What, what was I going to uh, focus my own studies on? Then Drew touched on the allyship aspect of his work. I was in graduate school uh, during when 911 happened. And I remember being really, uh, you know, as disturbing as that event was, 
It was also really troubling to see the kind of knee-jerk kind of patriotism that arose out of that event uh, that, that really started to draw some stark lines between us and them. Um, you know, this, this emerging, it's always been there. It's always part of the fabric of the American experience, but this, this fear and, and even hatred of the other. And I started thinking about some of the rhetoric that, that goes along with that. And uh, it started leading me back to, you know, where did that rhetoric come from? And, and, and it took me to early colonial discourse. And, and then I started thinking about, well, how are Native people responding to that at the time? Because they were the other during the whole colonial experience. And it turns out they were responding to it and that Native people were writing back to it, um, like much earlier than we think they were. And, and that turned out to be this whole field that I found people had not uh, fully explored, like scholars had not opened the story up adequately yet. And, and that became a portal for me to start thinking about how can I contribute to um, rectifying these historical narratives in a way that, that seems ethical to me and that might be of use and in and, and a way that I can serve as an ally to Native communities. We discovered that there were Native Americans already engaging with hymnody at a very high level, and this is where Drew casts some doubt on whether William Walker, compiler of Southern Harmony, would have even known Joseph Johnson. That means that the name Johnson, inscribed at the top of Indian Convert in Southern Harmony, is most likely not the same Joseph Johnson that Drew mentions in his article. So let me just put some context to this. Joseph Johnson and Samson Ockham were Mohegans in the uh, 18th century, and both of them were very involved in, in hymnody. Uh, Samson Ockham was a, um, uh, a preacher who had been ordained in the Episcopalian Church, and he... Uh, he, he actually, in, in 1773, he wrote a book of hymns, or he compiled a book of hymns, and it was incredibly popular. So again, we have no script for this in our narrative of, of American history or the history of hymnody of, of Native Americans, a Mohegan Indian, uh, not only uh, performing and playing hymns, but, but compiling a hymn book, and he wrote some of the hymns in there. And so Joseph Johnson was sort of the... Uh, he was a protege of Occam's and Occam was, was sort of a big deal in his time. He was a known person and he wrote this book and the book itself was a bestseller. Um, Johnson was not well known. And, and, and so Johnson, while an interesting figure to me as a scholar um, was barely a blip on, you know, the historical radar screen. And so he was, he was very much invested in hymnody as well. Uh, but I can't imagine William Walker would have known who Joseph Johnson was. So, so where does that attribution come from? Um, that is a mystery. Like that, that's something I would I would be asking you perhaps because you're more familiar. You know, my dropping into the study of of hymnody was a complete accident and and not something that that I am an expert in at all, except for where it strangely intersects with with my studies on on Native history and culture and literature. Now, this rarely happens, but I was able to tell my guest something he didn't already know. Um, interestingly, um, you had part of your article talks about how um, uh, somebody was talking to people who remember singing the Indian hymn in their childhood. And, yeah. you know, they remember it with such uh, fondness. And I want you to know, maybe you do know, maybe you don't know, um, the Sacred Heart tradition 
is still going on very, very strongly. And there's only, as far as I know, one, maybe two scenes in the country where Southern harmony is still sung in that, you know, that group fashion. Uh, the most notable of which is the big sing in Benton, Kentucky in, in May of every year. And I want you to know that they still sing this song. Okay. That, that is convention. amazing. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's something that of course is very divisive. And when somebody, you know, I don't know if you know about this tradition, but you, you have a, a leader that comes up to the front, different leaders for each song, and they'll call the tune. I want to sing 231. And everybody turns in their books. And then they'll give the pitch, and then they say, they all sing in this really guttural sort of sound. When this tune is called, you have people leaving the room, and then they come back after it's sung. So it's one of these sort of sacred, like, don't mess with it. If if you don't want to sing it, just leave and come back. Some people absolutely love it with that same nostalgia. Some people think it's the worst thing ever. So I, I just didn't know if you know that this is still happening here, right here today. <laughs> I, I should be shocked. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you should be shocked. But yeah, it, it's, 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 in fact, I, during the pandemic, I attended the Benton Sing on, online because I was doing research with someone who helps to coordinate it. And there it was. They just, they sang it with, with you know, the minstrel lyrics and everything. So I just went so as, a, just as say, an aside. I, I mean, thank you for that. Um, I, I did not know that. Um, and, and it's, it's really, I find that a little unsettling. I mean, it, it, it's, this is a, it is, it's a racist, it's a racist composition. Just 100% just plain and simple. And to include it in your tradition suggests <clears throat> that, that, you're, you're perhaps to, to ask a group of people to sing that song. It, it's one thing to, to acknowledge it historically and, and to recognize it as being part of the tradition, but, but to ask a group of people today to sing that song with those lyrics. And I guess we'll talk a little bit more about that. Right. But, but that that's asking people to engage in, in an incredibly um, uh, uh, derogatory, insulting, um, expression of indigenous identity, and and you can't really separate the the singing of it, the performance of it from the composition of it. it it's it's no. it's it just should not be done. No, I agree. Then Drew offers insights about the fascination of white people around appropriative works like Indian hymn. To my twenty first century ears or eyes, it's clear that the Indian hymn was written by a white person masquerading yeah. as a Native American. But in your article, you talk about how some people just flat out admit it was not written by William Apris or, or by a Native American. Other people are just lean into it. I mean, whom was this him fooling, really? Or, or, or were they just so sort of all in with the, the propaganda of the happy converted Indian that they just went with it? I think it's... Uh... You know, it'd be, it would be interesting to ask your audience or your 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 those people in Kentucky today or, or wherever you said it was where they're still singing it. Like, what do they Kentucky. think? Um, be interesting to um, sort of peel back those stereotypes. But it was very easy for people in the 19th century to believe, and, and I think to some extent it's, it's even easy for people today um, 
of a certain sensibility to to believe that that native people had this kind of obsequious um stilted kind of language right that that they would speak in this this really um just kind of slovenly sort of diction and and so even if even if it even if they didn't, well, I, I think they did believe, I think it was easy for them to believe that native people were, were thoroughly othered in the 19th and 18th, 19th century. Uh, they were believed to be savages and, and, and not just, um, you know, not, that's not just a term that was thrown around loosely. They were believed to be on a lower rung of yeah. the human species. Right. And, Absolutely. and so the, the same kind of racist, hierarchy that allowed you to believe that uh that black africans were were incapable of of complex thought or writing or or um or even of of true sincere conversion to christianity by many um the the same things were believed of natives so to take these expressions that we had already projected onto black identity at the time and just shift them over and to move them onto native identity was sort of a novel move in some ways, but it was not a difficult move for people to make. And so I think white people really, uh, they believed it, but they also found comfort in it. It's like the minstrel show itself was a popular form of entertainment during this entire period. Um, it was just emerging really in this period, but, but what we're talking about is later on people still, really responded to this particular hymn, right? And and so it, it kind of runs on a parallel path with minstrelsy. Minstrelsy, um, which used the, the form of enter- entertainment that, that denigrated Black identity in all of these various ways that incorporate song and dance and everything else. Um, white people loved it. They felt comfortable with it. Uh, they, they really identified with it in some strange way. And so I think whether or not they believe native people talk that way. And I, I think they probably did. Um, they, they received comfort from singing that song. It was, they, they, it was, it was not native people who, who loved to sing the native hymn. It was white audiences who loved to sing yeah. the native hymn. And that clearly holds true right up to our current moment. Cause you would never in a million years catch a native <laughs> choir of any sort singing that song. I mean, it would just be, that would be insane. Then more information comes about the origin of this very strange hymn and the way it is often portrayed in hymn collections. Also, Drew reveals why Apis is credited as the author. For me, logically, the tell is that it, it not that it's the crude language, quote unquote, but it's in perfect meter and rhyme. That would be like me with my limited knowledge of French. I write a French poem and it's it's perfectly metered and rhymed in my lack of French knowledge, right? And then it says at the bottom, as as you indicate, that most iterations of this have some kind of disclaimer about, or you know, this was taken down. You know, listening to a Native American, it says the first three verses of this song were taken almost verbatim by a missionary from an Indian's experience while he was relating it. So it's almost as if he was just making it up on the spot. It's just, it's just so, I don't know. It's just so interesting to me. Yeah. So one of the, what, so here's the, the irony is that I, and I take your point. So there's sort of two parts to this, but the irony is that, that there were very much native people who could have written this out 
in meter and rhyme because because native people uh, at the time that this hymn emerges are, are native people in New England are 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 very much um, uh, aware of literacy. They've been writing for you know na- native people have been living under colonialism for two hundred years uh, by the eight, eighteen thirties when this hymn begins to emerge in the uh, in the hymn in the in the uh, Southern Companions and, and other uh, hymn books like that. And so Native people know how to read and write. Um, and they and, and somebody like William Apis or Joseph Johnson or Sansom Malcolm, you know, just, just to mention a few that we've already talked about, they could have written this out easily um, in, in meter and everything else. It, it was not beyond their capacities at all. And of course, Sansom Malcolm did write hymns that were included in that popular hymn book I, I spoke of earlier. And so it wasn't beyond the capacity of Native people to do this. It just, they just simply wouldn't have written that. because. Yeah. And, and so this is what makes it so interesting is that it's, it's been attributed to William Apis in, in many of these contexts, right? So, so the addition that you have attributes it vaguely to somebody named Johnson, um, whoever that might be. But, but there was a tradition that William Apis wrote it. And, and that's how yeah. I connected with it, because it was included in the 1831 edition of his um, autobiography, A Son of the Forest. It, it's just sort of tacked on there at the end. And so for years, scholars just assumed that he wrote it. And yeah. what I've sort of tried to uncover in my research in the article we're talking about is, is that th- there was actually that, that, first of all, he couldn't have written it. it and, and secondly, that he never would have included it in his own book. This is something that the publishers um, who were part of the Methodist book concern at the time, you know, the Methodists, the white Methodist organization probably thought this was a nice compliment to the book that they were publishing written by William Apis. And so they tacked it in there for white audiences to see, I suppose. And, and, and so because of that link, it, it was attached to William Apis's name for many, many years. But then, as you say, uh, there were those who would then, like, even as they attributed it to William Apis, they would they would sort of walk back from that and say, you know, it, it's the tradition is that it's by Apis, but there's almost a sense that even William Apis himself could not have written it, and, and that the tradition sort of, it just keeps flowing back to this milky uh beginning somewhere that as you say like some some native was heard singing it and and it was recorded by a missionary and then it just traveled onwards so it's a complicated tradition that goes behind uh the the composition or provenance of the song where did it come from the origin of the song of the hymn um i should say just you know just for your audience's sake you know understanding who william apis is right um it's it sort of puts it in context when you understand that william apis in the 1830s was a Methodist minister and he, he had come from a life of extreme poverty. He was a Pequot. He was born uh, a member of the Pequot tribe and, and the tribe itself. uh, It's a tribe um, that's today based in Southern Connecticut. Um, They had been at the forefront of colonial expansionism and, and really colonial violence for, for, you know, a couple hundreds of years. And so they lived in, in extreme poverty at the edge of society. And William Apis, his parents were too poor to raise him. So he was farmed out to white families. And this was the norm when he was a child. This is, this is what native people just simply had to do to survive. 
And so he grew up away from his own family. He went to war, fought for the United States Army in the War of 1812. And he, he experienced a lot of traumas, and, but somehow he, he pulled himself together. He reoriented himself to his native community in this, these really proactive ways. And he became a Methodist minister because it provided him a means to advocate for his community, not because he was like jumping over to the colonial side of things, but being a minister gave him a pulpit from which he ultimately became very effective at, at speaking truth to power. And, and so William Apis becomes the first Native American in the United States, as we know it, to begin writing these book-length um, tracts, biography, autobiographies, um, really kind of political tracts in a way, too. And, and they were all geared towards advocating for Native rights in the early 19th century, and at a time when we don't even think Native people are writing for the most part, right? So that's who he is, and that's how the hymn was, like as I said, attached to his book, his autobiography. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's a really, his story in and of itself is a really fascinating story and, and one that I'm really invested in telling. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a biography of William Apis myself and and I, I'll jump at any platform to talk about who William Apis is because people need to know about him. Then we move to a discussion about another way that Native Americans were exploited. I was really enlightened when you talked about how at this time and after just a furtive little tick on a census box could convert not someone to Christianity, but from a Native American to a, an African American, and thereby kind of like relinquishing the, any claim that they might have had to to the land, which I think is, I mean, it, it just the cruelty, just the, the, the hits just keep on coming. You're right. The cruelty just keeps coming. That's it's it's such a good way of saying it because it was it was enlightening to me as well when I was a graduate student and, and the more, and then, and then even beyond the more I went into this research, you know, the, the systemic processes by which we work to marginalize groups of people and keep them in poverty and, and, and don't allow them even like true personhood when you realize just how deep and in, 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 and intentional it is, you know, we have this, this convention and, and we're all probably have been guilty at it at some point of our lives. When we think of native people, we, you know, this question forms, are you, are you whole blooded native? You know, are you, are you a full blooded native? Like, like there's, there's some kind of romantic cachet to that, but native people are like everybody else. They've intermarried with various other people and, and, and they've had cultural influences that, that affect and change their lives, like Christianity, um, that is that has been forced upon them, but but in many ways has infiltrated and and been embraced in some some place. I mean, you know, I think William Apis was a sincere Christian for all his um, resistance to dominant structures. But the point being that that native people we're, we're, you know, the, the expectation that somebody should be full blood, where does that even come from? Um, why, why do we have that expectation? And it really goes back to these questions, like, like deep in our past, when we go back to the 18th and 19th century, this was one of the ways that, that native people were being disenfranchised from their communities is they'd have people come in there and overseer, so to speak, who would do a, 
survey of the community and they say, well, there's really only like 10 full-blooded Pequot people left. And so you can't really call the tribe a tribe anymore. And they say, you know, there were intermarriage with black communities. And of course, with black communities um, in the free North, um, even in the South, there are these interesting rules that work just the exact opposite way. If you, so if you're in the black if, if, when we're thinking about black identity, you've heard of the one drop rule, right? So one drop of black blood will make you black. Just one drop. That was the idea. But if you're native, if you're not full blood, if you have one drop of white or black or anything else, you're no longer native. And so it's like this, both of these completely polar opposite ideas both work to marginalize these communities. And so if you could say, well, these native communities, they, they intermarried with these black communities because they had both been marginalized on the edges of society and, and, and because that's where they met and that's where they convened because, because, because of their economic status. And, and so you could say, well, they're no longer native, they're black. That, was to, that worked to the advantage of the settler community. They, and they could say, so they're no longer native. And so this whole land holding that they claim is theirs or by law and by treaty um, ha, has been in their hands. They, they have no claim to it anymore. They, there's really not enough of them left. Well, it turns out, you know, these people who are native, who, who married, you know, William Apis is Pequot, but, but his mother was African-American. And so it, it didn't make him any less native. It's only in this strange colonial uh, uh, stratagem that, that somehow he couldn't be native. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm white. My father was Sicilian. My mother was German. I'm American. Nobody questions my claim to be either American or Sicilian or German. I can be all those things. Uh, it doesn't matter. But, but if you're native, all of a sudden this seems to have incredible ramifications, which are completely socially constructed to their disadvantage. Yeah, I'm going to be thinking about this for days. That that is just mind blowing. That the, the like you said, the opposite ways that that make that make you part of the out group now. So exactly. whatever yeah. way they can cook the books to make you in the out group is what they do. It's it's really so remarkable. That, that's that's right. And then you know to get to your other point is so on the census, if you were Native American, you know, one year you could be all of a sudden determined to be black the next year, or as it was with William Apis. Um, Although he always managed to check himself on the Native American box um, because the powers that be weren't really tracking him that carefully. Um, his children, as it turns out, were, were just sort of randomly. Some of them were listed black on the census. Some of them were, were listed as Native. And, and it had no bearing on anything except for just the arbitrary, depends on who was there checking the box. Drew explains a theme in his article about hymnody and its special place in the Native American community of the time. Can you just talk a little bit about this interesting thing I had never heard of, this trend of quoting hymnody in prose and what it did for marginalized people? Probably for me, the best way to understand this is that as Native people are having Christianity pretty much forced upon them, right? I mean, so we're talking about by the time you get past the the 17th century. So you know the pilgrims come to New England and whatnot, and and they have various interactions. But but a hundred years down the road, uh, Native people have been forced into very small 
conclaves, reservations, we could call them. We don't think about reservations being in the Northeast, but they, but they were. And, and they, they were, they were subjected to um, a system of overseers who could sort of make their lives miserable for them. And, and, and so basically they were, they had very little choice, but to identify with the Christian religion. Um, it, it, if they didn't, uh, they could be just disenfranchised in, in so many different ways. They just, they, they wouldn't get work. They wouldn't, you could take their children away from them. You could do anything you wanted basically. But, um, so you become Christian, you adopt a framework of Christianity. And, and what I think what most native people tried to do was to loop it into their own cultural traditions. And so what a lot of people don't, consider, I suppose, is that Native people really like to sing. And and singing was something that they did in a community structure. And so they could, so hymnody was one of the most effective ways to um, present Christianity to Native people, it turned out, particularly Native people as, as who, who weren't in New England, but as you're moving further west and trying to convert more Natives or, or bring them into the Christian tradition, hymnody becomes a way to do this. And, and even within the New England Natives, um, hymnody is something that, that is being adopted. So like when I say Samson Ockham in 1773 writes a uh, or, or compiles a collection of hymns, this isn't an outlier thing. This is perfectly natural for his community. They love to sing hymns, and this is what draws them together and helps bind them within this structure of Christianity that's kind of been forced upon them. And so uh, th- this was really effective. And then when Native people start writing their own stories, because uh, particularly in the Methodist Church, it was it, the, there was an idea that that you should be able to tell your narrative and 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 your 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 spiritual autobiography was was this was an important step towards conversion. And so, um, ministers would would sort of record people's um, their 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 st- the stories about their path to conversion. And there's certain conventions in that, but Native people started writing these down. William Apis was one of the people who collected some of these. And in his tract, uh, uh, Narratives of Five Christian Indians, uh, the the Native people who were telling these stories would insert uh, uh, pieces of hymnody into their narrative at very key moments. Like, you know, so that's for them, it's kind of like quoting scripture in a way. Um, they, they knew the hymnody really well, and it was a way of sort of reinforcing um, their conviction or, or this particular moment that they were trying to describe, that was just an easy thing for them to relate it to. And, and so that was citing authority for them. Like you, just like in the hymn, um, who was the great 18th century hymn, hymn writer? Um, John Newton is one. Um, Robert Robertson. Isaac Watts. <laughs> yeah. That's who I'm trying, I'm trying to come up with Isaac Watts's name. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Watts was really like a favorite. And and but they drew from the others as well. But but they're they're constantly drawing from these um, Isaac Watts hymns, and they have metaphors about you know wandering in the forest and spiritual darkness, and and then all of a sudden a moment of epiphany will arrive. And and there were a lot of sort of quotes of that nature that Native people would draw upon that that somehow either was an expectation or or they felt related to their own experience. 
Next, Drew indulges me in the theme that comes up for me again and again around the tension between the Great Commission and how it affects Native and Indigenous people and their own sacred traditions. When I read the, the passage about um, Apis's wife, who was, who, who was uh, caring for someone who was sick and who found the hymn look, and all of a sudden I'm like, oh no, they got to you too. But yeah. I just wonder, I have such a hard time with, with sort of, you know, musing about whether they just lost their their traditions altogether. I'm hearing you say no, but just like African-Americans, they found a way to, to m- meld the two things. And then how many people were just dissembling so that they wouldn't be so so marginalized? But then you have the, you know, Apis and others, Occam, who were preachers, missionaries, and you you can't be faking that. And so it's it's just so wildly interesting to me, just the imposition of, you know, the colonist belief systems and, and the, the way that fractures or the, the way that, that, that they deal with that, if you could speak to that at all. So I, I, I think that's, that is a very, you know, it's a common response that people have, particularly with Native Americans, because I, I think we've all sort of um, acclimated ourselves. Some, you know, it, it's not unusual to associate um, African-American identity today with the church. And, and, and we've seen that so much, but we don't really see that with Native Americans, right? It's certainly not reflected back to us in movies and, and other cultural productions. And so it's, it seems like even more of a betrayal, if you will, right? This is what's really hard to figure out. Um, although really the, um, I, I think the motivations or the, the processes are very similar between these two groups of how they, they got indoctrinated into the church. But no matter where you go in Native community today, the church is there. The church has, has gotten there. And and every community, it, it's not always, not every individual in a native, uh, in a particular native tribe or community is, is going to have the same relationship with the church. And certainly some people um, are are angry about the hypocrisy of that, like in the similar way that, that you're, you know, that reaction that you're describing, that sense of betrayal. So, so it's not that native people don't feel that, but but the church is there and, um, and it's been there for a long time. And people in Apis's time, in Occam's time, they didn't have a choice. And when you don't have a choice, you have to figure out how to work within the system, right? I mean, you, you just don't have a choice. And so rather than, than let it beat you down, you figure out how to work with it. Um, I sometimes feel that way working in an institution like a university. Um, I can guarantee you that I do not agree with everything my university stands for and every decision that it makes. And I could stand on the outside and throw you know, Molotov cocktails at it and say, you stink. But, but I am within the system and I do work within the system because I have to, that's how I survive basically. And, and, and so I try to use it to my best advantage, even when sometimes I'm using it in ways that resist the system or, or work against it. And I don't think it's any different. I think William Apis, Sansom Malcolm, they were very aware of the hypocrisy. So the way I like to describe it is William Apis, you know, when he becomes a minister and, and, and it, it costs him a great effort and a great amount of time to reach this place, I can guarantee you there was a great deal of resistance. There were people in the white Methodist community who were like, we don't want an Indian coming into our ranks like this. Um, you know, it's okay to have them as a convert. We want that. 
but we don't want to accept them into the higher ranks of the church order. And he had to fight all that resistance. But, and so he's aware of the resistance. He's aware of the prejudice against him, like in circumstances that you've mentioned. But he also understands that he can use this pulpit as a way to, to have access to places he wouldn't otherwise, to, to come into churches and to meeting houses and to all these other venues. And, and even though people might see him as a spectacle, here's the Indian preacher. Let's go. That, that's, that's like a carnival. I mean, people, it, people would, this was a draw. He would fill houses because people wanted to see the Indian preacher. Right. And then he would tell them, he would begin to explain to them the hypocrisy of the Christian church. He's like, I mean, here I've embraced Christianity and, and you've been trying to tell us to be good Christians, but look at yourselves, look at how you are not being good Christians. And that was a really effective. And so he could begin to tell the history of colonialism and say, you know, native people treated you with hospitality. Native people were in fact better Christians than you were in most ways. And and so you could see how that was a really effective rhetoric that that could really work. It, it could also you know, quite frankly, it could piss a lot of people off, right? But I mean, it also was persuasive, which is why it angered people. And so, so he's coming at it from that angle, and and so that I think helps to put it in in perspective in a different way, right? This was a tool of power, and he was able to use that tool in fairly effective ways in his time. Finally, Drew offers more information about William Apis, who should be much more well known than he is. I, I give a lot of talks about William Apis um, in all sorts of different venues. And I always begin by, by asking people, how many of you have heard of Frederick Douglass? And everybody raises their hand. And then I'm like, how many of you have heard of William Apis? And, you know, typically silence, right? And so I think William Apis should be a household name like Frederick Douglass is. In other words, I think his writings, William Apis precedes Frederick Douglass. And so when he's writing in the 18, late 1820s and 1830s, um, he's really forging a discourse of resistance for people of color that doesn't exist yet. You know, it, it hasn't, it, it, there's been threads of it, but it, that are trying to come together. But I think William Apis develops the rhetoric that people like Frederick Douglass will pick up on um, like 10, 15, 20 years down the road and begin to use um, a little bit more effectively, perhaps. You know, William Apis didn't have a chance to, he died young, first of all. He died of an appendicitis, and he was uh, he was about 41. But, um, but you know, Frederick Douglass had this very long and, and incredible career. He kept writing long past what people even un- know him to have written. But um, at any rate, I, I think he's an, he's an incredible and dynamic figure. I, I, I'd really like people to know more about him. Um, pick up his book. Thank you for for purchasing my book. By the way, <laughs> I think it's a really you know it's it's a it's a scholarly work, but I think it's a very uh, approachable and readable work, and, and that you'll find that uh, William Apis's story is it's just an amazing story. It, it's an epic story of survival. It's one of, of resistance, and and it it drops you into um, just aspects of history that we are so unfamiliar with as a culture. And so, and, and so I hope it has that kind of just kind of cascading effect on people. They're just like one epiphany after another, like, Oh, I didn't realize that. And I didn't realize that. Yeah. And I didn't realize that. And so, um, 
I think his life makes all of that available to us. I can't wait to read the book. And um, if it's anything like the article, I think it'll be just marvelous. I, um, a lot of times when you read articles, um, you know, all the information is there, but it's a little opaque somehow. It, 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 um, it's not, it's not that the point is not made, but it's not elegantly made. And I think that you really make your points. You, you state your points elegantly and, and it, it just like, Whoa. Okay. Let me just take a moment and let that sentence sink in for just a minute. So I really appreciate your scholarship. Thank you so much for that. I, I, I really appreciate that. And I appreciate you creating this platform for, for us to talk about it. With three men up, 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 round. 